welcome to the Fish Nerds. Wow, uh, this is Clay Groves, Chief Executive Fish Nerds, the Fish Nerds Podcast. And I'm so happy uh, to be here. This is our 150th episode, and I was just kind of thinking about this. Is we made 150 of these things, and we we can't um, we can't do this without support of people who are listening. You guys who are listening right now are why we do this. So thank you so much for being part of the Fish Nerds Nation. Uh, we love making the podcast, and we love that you're listening, and we hope that, uh, that you stay with us for 150 more. Then maybe at 300 we stop. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, welcome to the Fish Nerds. Tonight, uh, I am the solo host. Uh, I have no co-host tonight. It's just me all by myself. And, um, yeah, let's just kind of jump right into what we're going to do tonight. April is National Poetry Month, so my kid Zoe asked me if she could read a beautiful poem she found about fishing. I'd rather be fishing than talking to you. At least when I'm fishing, I know what to do. I'd rather hold a blue gill in my hand than to get hit on the head with a frying pan. I'd rather be fishing than to look at your face. At least the fish don't get on my case. I'd rather get in a fight with an alligator gar than to put up with your daily nagging by far. I'd rather be fishing any old day than to stay home with you and try and play. I'd rather untangle a backlashed line than to spend an evening with you sipping wine. Do I love fishing, or do I love you? I don't know. It gotta be one of the two. To know the answer is what I'm wishing. Maybe I'll think of it while I'm fishing. Thank you. And that was by Juan Olivares from Austin, Texas. Beautiful poem. Thank you, Zoe. And speaking of literature, we have an FN book club. That's our book club for the fish nerds. Next week, we will be, we will be talking about the founding fish. Uh, our effin' librarian, Jeff Danielson, will join us to talk about the American Shad. Uh, the book is called The Founding Fish. We've already read it. You can, too. If you want to be part of the discussion, call 607-378-FISH or join the effin' book club group on Goodreads. And you can find the links to that and everything at fishnerds.com. Oh, the doctor is in. Dr. Erica Martin is here with her segment. Uh, cool thing, Dr. Martin has been with the podcast now three years, I think making her our longest running correspondent. So Doc Martin, thank you so much for being part of the show. And we hope to hear a lot more from you in 2017. The doctor is in. So hello, Fish Nerds. This is Doc Martin. Um, I'm very excited to talk about the topic that I'm going to talk about today. Um, <laughs> usually I get to banter with one of the other co-hosts or with Clay, but it is all me today. Um, so I will do my best to keep myself on track and focused but I cannot make any promises. That's not how my brain usually works. <laughs> um, so for those of you that maybe haven't heard me before, um, uh, my name is Erica Martin, and I am a research scientist and uh, university faculty member. Um, I got my PhD in biology, uh, specifically looking at stream ecology 
for small-bodied cyprinids, which is um, exactly as narrow and specific as it sounds. But I'm a general fish nerd and enthusiast, so I study and read about lots of different things about fish. Um, also, I am, besides the job that I currently have, I am working on a master's degree in theoretical astrophysics. Um, and I've been taking a couple classes over the last uh, about a year and a half now, and I'm just starting to get my thesis proposal for the project that I want to do in the works. So um, I have a diversity of interests, you might say. <laughs> um, but today I get to talk about a topic that covers physics and fishes. And even though they sound like they start with the same letter, they do not. There's, there's an English joke for uh, those of you that are more literary than I am. Um, we're going to talk about fish vision, um, which is really exciting. Uh, I'm going to geek out and I will try to talk slowly because I tend to talk really fast when I get excited. But fish vision is great because we're going to start with learning a little bit about light and then we're going to learn a little bit about the morphology of eyes and where those come from. And then, of course, I'm going to give you some crazy examples of evolution um, and fish do some pretty crazy things, which is always fun because there's um, a lot of the times in the things that I talk about on this podcast, I do very general things. Just in general, here's how it works. You know, this is the standard case. And then I usually pick one or two um, examples that are, are not the standard case. Um, and I think one of my favorite sayings in ecology and science is, um, well, they, they don't always follow the rules. Nothing does. You can always find uh, some type of exception, um, which is fun. That's, that's what makes science fun, right? We're never done learning. Um, I digress. This is why I usually have Clay here to rein, rein me in. Um, let's start with light. Uh, where does light come from? If you said the sun, um, you would be you would be correct, uh, or stars. That's also correct. The sun is a star. But where though? I mean, that's where it comes from. But from where? How does that happen? Um, it turns out it's not magic, although it's pretty cool. Um, the basic unit of light is called a photon. So that's what. If I say photon, I'm talking about light. Um, and that photons are produced in a chemical reaction, usually a pretty hot one, um, and an electron, which is a little teeny tiny negatively charged particle that um, orbits the nucleus of an atom. Um, there, it turns out that there's different orbital areas where an electron can be. So think of if the nucleus was our sun, then the electrons could be a different orbit away from the sun. So like Mercury, Venus, Earth, those are different distances. Um, in a similar way, uh, electrons orbit at very specific distances from the nucleus. Okay, so um, if you go further away from the nucleus, then you're in a high energy orbital. And if an electron moves from a high energy orbital down to a lower energy orbital, that releases energy, usually in the form of light or heat. Ah, 
And oftentimes, um, light and heat are produced in the same reaction. Um, and you can actually see that. So if you have like a metal rod or something and you heat it up in a bonfire, um, hopefully not in your kitchen. I do not recommend doing that. But you'll see it get really uh, hot and glows red or white. Um, you're moving around electrons. How cool is that? So it, the answer is pretty cool. That's super cool. Um, I digress. So that's where light comes from. So it travels um, in about eight minutes from the sun to the earth where we see it. And it turns out the electromagnetic spectrum, so that's all the different kinds and colors of light, is way bigger than the visible spectrum of light. So the rainbow, that's the visible spectrum. Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. And indigo actually isn't like a real, quote unquote, real color. They actually just included that because... Um, I think it was like a popular dye at the time, and so they wanted to include it, um, but it's not really a true color. Uh, but now you can say Roy G. Biv, uh, which is how I always memorized the rainbow when I was little. So if you take out the I, then you can't pronounce it like that. So why not keep it? Makes everything easier, right? Um, anyway, <laughs> told you I need clay here. <laughs> um, the electromagnetic spectrum is huge. So it actually includes things like radio waves that you, you hear on the radio, microwaves, infrared, then you have your visible spectrum, your rainbow, then ultraviolet, x-rays, and gamma rays. That's a lot of different kinds of rays. Technically, if we could, if our eyes could absorb these um, low energy radio waves, then we could actually see radio waves, which if you take a minute and really think about that, you could see radio waves. That's pretty wild. Um, we don't, obviously. Um, otherwise, they'd be everywhere. You'd never see anything, especially with all the radio shows. But that's, it's just super cool. So we only absorb and see this very, very tiny piece of this entire electromagnetic spectrum. Um, okay, so with visible light, in order to see anything, we have to have eyes. That, that's usually very helpful. Um, a long time ago, maybe not a long time ago, decades ago, maybe more than decades, it was thought that the eyes evolved one time and that all eyes that all animals possess had a one common ancestor. Um, more recent studies, uh, they've looked at the morphology and where different parts of the eye actually come from. And they say, no, there's no way that it's just one. It's actually evolved kind of independently 40 or more different times. So eyes are probably really important. Um, and there's different levels. There's ones that only just sense, is there light or is there not? Um, there's just black and white sensitivity, um, just for, for low or nocturnal, and then there's color. So there's lots of different types of eyes out there, which is pretty cool in and of itself. Um, but to for, for the most part, we'll be talking about animals that can see in color, um, which teleost, your bony fishes, 
can see in color. And I'm going to focus on the bony fishes. So just know, keep in the back of your mind that the chondrichthys, your cartilaginous fishes, so your sharks and your rays and things like that, um, that would be a, a little separate topic. They have some very unique eye structures and I'm, I'm going to just put a pin in that and if you really, if, if you guys are interested, I can talk about it later. If you've had enough of light and eyes, I will never speak of it again. So first, rods and cones. Those are the structures in the back of the eye um, on the retina that absorb light. The rods are not for color. So they are more for just detecting all the light that they can. They're really, really useful if you live in a habitat that has low light. So think of nocturnal species uh, on land or fish that live really, really deep in the water. They would really rely on rods. Cones see color. Um, so there's different types of cones. Um, the humans, we are called uh, trichromads. So that means that we kind of have three cones and each cone specializes in certain wavelengths of light. Um, and it turns out that for humans, that covers the, the visible spectrum that we see, that rainbow. So those three cones and in their combinations give us the rainbow. Okay, and um, these pigments uh, are... Each, so the pigments that we see in our cones, they're made of proteins, and that's uh, what allows like the wavelengths of these light to be absorbed and then processed in our brain, the optic nerve and all that other fun stuff. Um, it turns out vision is complicated. Um, oh, and another fun fact. <laughs> I think it was the Greeks way back. Oh, it's not... I don't think it was Socrates. I think it was... Oh, I don't, I don't recall, but I'm pretty sure it was the Greeks. Um, they were philosophizing, and there was two big competing theories about how we saw. One person thought that the light was emitted from our eyes on two things, and that's how we saw. But eventually someone figured out that, no, it's actually the light coming from other places reflecting off of those things, and then our, our eyes catch that reflected light. So that was pretty cool. Greeks kind of knew what was up. <laughs> they did pretty good for their time. Um, but fish possess rods and cones, um, the teleosts do, just like us. Um, and the amount and type of the uh, cones and the visual pigments vary among species of fish. So the environment that a certain fish has evolved in um, has a correlation with the visual pigment types that fish, that species will possess. So fish that live in really deep water where there's very little light that penetrates all the way down, they might have one or maybe even no cone types. They don't need them. Color doesn't get down that far. No light reaches them. Um, and, but there are four types of cone pigments that fish can have. Four. We humans have three. So fish can see in colors that we can't even imagine. 
that's pretty cool. I mean, I'm also a little jealous, but that's super neat. Um, if you care to go online, you can actually Google. They have found um, a few humans that actually do have the tetrochromad uh, genes. So they, those special human beings, can actually see uh, different colors. It's pretty cool. And so what that does, um, depending on exactly where those uh, pigments are absorbing, it could let the fish see um, very specific differences between like a green and a blue. So like a, a bleen, if you will. Um, or it could be at a different end of the spectrum, maybe past the purple into the ultraviolet. So that's something that we can't see at all. And some fish actually do see uh, ultraviolet light. Um, so it kind of depends on where those pigments are, what those fish are seeing that, that we're not seeing. Um, it should also be noted that when the light comes in through our atmosphere, which does filter out some of that, um, water is a better transmission for sound. Water is really not as good as air for transmission of light. So the water absorbs light. So the further a ray of light travels through the water, it becomes weaker until it's completely absorbed. Um, and it turns out that the wavelength or color, so wavelength and color are actually synonymous. So if you have a different wavelength of light, you have a different color of light. So uh, red light is absorbed very easily in water, so it does not reach down very far. Blue light is not absorbed as easily in water, so it actually goes really deep down, past 120 feet, I believe, whereas red only makes it maybe 15. So if you think about that, red light is not penetrating, we'll just say below 15 feet. So if you're a little fish, and let's say you live 30, 40 feet down, and you are the color red, your scales are red, but no red light gets down to you, so there's no red light to reflect off of your body, that means that you're invisible-ish. That's an easy way to say it. So being red is a really good camouflage if you're in the water. Blue, not so much. Um, which is it's kind of, I think it's pretty neat. Um, so, let's see. Um, I think that kind of just covers where light comes from and that kind of stuff. So, let's go to some of my neato cases. So, we already talked a little bit about how fish can see in ultraviolet and, and lots of other colors that we may or may not be able to see. Um, why do they see that? Who cares? I mean, is it just by chance or is there a purpose to it? Um, as you, as you can imagine, there, usually there is a method to the madness, <laughs> as they say. Um, and it could be related to uh, foraging. So seeing the things that they eat, um, or communication. So a lot of fishes will, you know, they have bright colors and patterns that, you know, they say, oh, I want to hide or, oh, I'm really dangerous and things like that. So they communicate in these different color patterns, um, as well as select 
different mates. So if they have pretty color patterns, you know, it's like putting on makeup. Hey, what's up? Come on over. Let's have babies. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Can I say that on the air? It's kind of weird. But um, so, yeah, so there's a lot of different reasons that fish would want to see different colors. And a lot of that kind of depends on what are they doing and what habitat do they live in. So a fish that is evolved over time in a really murky habitat where it's just a lot of silt and sand and sus sus suspended particles, vision might not be as important. They would probably want to uh, rely more heavily on uh, sound or um, electric pulses, which a lot of fishes can feel electric pulses with their lateral line, which is another super cool thing that fish can do. Um, but if they live in really clear water, then those kinds of things would be more important. Um, so there is one fish. So now we have color vision. Um, it's, it's complicated. You kind of know where it works and it depends on the type of fish and their habitat based on what colors they can and can't see. And now I want to talk about the four-eyed fish. So the anableps, anableps. Um, is a tiny little top water fish. I believe I've actually done a blurb on this before, but since we're talking about eyes, I thought I'd want to talk about one of the very interesting um, exceptions to the generalization. Um, but the four-eyed fish, so they only have two eyes, so just like us, um, kind of, <laughs> but each eye is separated into a dorsal or top side section that can actually see in the air and then the ventral or bottom side section that looks underwater and they do this simultaneously so they sit at the top of this water and they're looking out and they're getting information from the air and from underwater at the same time which is freaking awesome. Imagine if you could do that. I, I would like to do that. I think that would be great. Especially, I mean, I like to go and snorkel to watch fish, um, <laughs> which I think is exciting. But imagine if you could snorkel and watch fish, but also keep an eye on like the bank and make sure you're not drifting too far and that kind of stuff. You could do both at the same time. And so these guys, um, let's see, who, who are these guys? Some scientists somewhere. Um, it's a paper by Owens and others from 2011, and they looked to see if the distribution of rods and cones and the types of light sensitivity in those rods and cones was different where the light from the air penetrated the eye versus the light from the water penetrated the eye. So this is, if you just took one eye and cut it in half like a sandwich, is there a difference in sensitivity in rods and cones above and below? And the answer was yes, there is. Um, and I will make sure I email this little figure uh, to Clay and maybe he could put it up on the website, but it's really neat. So um, you can imagine that like I said earlier, light, color light um, is different in air and water. So when they're looking out in the air, then they are more sensitive to things like uh, 
they have more like red and blue sensors, but when they need um, from from the water coming up, um, then the, they have different ones, and it's just really cool. So, uh, but it's just, it's it's a really neat little paper. Um, so basically, you have these different concentrations of proteins in different areas, um, and that 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 it makes it. it, it <laughs> It makes a lot of sense, given that they can look in the air and the water, that they would fine-tune the location and abundance of the rods and cones and different absorption patterns based on how the light travels through these two different mediums. And I don't know about you, but I think that is pretty spectacular. Um, I think that's all that I have, pretty much. Um boy, I talked for like 20 minutes. <laughs> um, I, the electromagnetic spectrum is so cool. Uh, if you want a fun thing to do that is completely not related to fish, uh, at all, but it's super fun. Um, so a lot of things out in the universe give off electromagnetic spectrum, like radio waves and microwaves and things like that. And NASA has, um, translated that into, audio that we can hear. So if you go to NASA's website and you type in like, uh, sounds of planets, you could probably just do that to Google sounds of planets, NASA, you will get their little sound files and you can listen to how the earth sounds and you can listen to how Jupiter sounds and different stars and different galaxies. And it's kind of neat to think that these microwaves and radio waves that we're hearing are the same particle, they're photons, as visible light that we are seeing with our eyeballs. Your earballs and your eyeballs are picking up the electromagnetic spectrum, but in very different ways. Um, and if you don't think that's cool, you can get out. I'm just kidding. Uh, I think a lot of things are cool. Um, well, I hope that that was at least interesting to somebody. Um, and I hope you got information while I kind of rambled on on some tangents. And if you ever have any questions or burning desire to know things, you can contact me through the Fish Nerds podcast Facebook page. Um, and if you just type the question in there, if you don't know how to find me through that site, uh, usually if you just type in, you know, Doc Martin or something like that, if I don't see it, uh, one of the other Fish Nerds fans that knows uh, where I'm at, they can tag me in that post, and then I will try my very best to um, respond to those questions either straight through the Facebook page or do this and make a little podcast um, that you guys can listen to with your earballs. <laughs> all right, well, I hope you all have a wonderful week or weekend. I'm not sure when this one's coming out, but I hope the day is absolutely fantastic. And it is always wonderful to do this for all of you fish nerds out there. Peace out. Okay, and how about some fish in the news? Because we love fish in the news. Everybody loves fish in the news. news, news. All right, first story up here, the real Sharknado. Shark cyclone, not Sharknado, beast out of, out of the water in Queensland as Cyclone Debbie floods recede. 
This is from the stuff.co.nz from New Zealand, sounds like, which is interesting coincidence because tonight we're talking to someone from New Zealand. A Queensland journalist got a shark surprise while surveying some receding floodwaters in the aftermath of Cyclone Debbie. Philip Calder spotted the dead shark while out covering the flooding near Ayer, South Townsville. Cyclone Debbie had passed south of the area on Tuesday and had caused moderate flooding in the nearby Burdekin River, which had washed the bull shark onto the road. Some great pictures of a shark in Miller Road. There was only moderate flooding peaked at the 9 meters mark and the Burdekin River about an hour before we took the photo, Calder said. The poor guy had obviously been trying to escape the torrent, something like that, had to beach himself on the road. He had been looking pretty clean and wasn't decomposing, so he wasn't there long. The state fire and emergency services posted his photograph of the dead shark with the caption. Here, here's the caption. Think again. Oh, <laughs> excuse me. With the caption, think it's safe to go back in the water? Think again. You never know what lurks beneath the surface during the severe storm and what will wash up in the aftermath. So, and it's this great looking uh, shark just sitting in the middle of the road and it looks huge. Uh, so anyway, that's Sharknado. Uh, what would you do if you saw a shark in the road? Um, I think the only thing you can do is take photos of it and tell a story about it. Not quite the exciting story I was hoping for. I was hoping for like sharks falling out of the sky onto people. But that's New Zealand. And I think New Zealand's the opposite of Australia where everything will kill you. So it's probably rare to see something deadly in the streets of New Zealand. That's my, my bet. This is, this is from WBUR, Boston's um, public radio. The race to fish slows down. Why that's good for fish, fishermen, and diners. It doesn't take more than a few episodes of the Discovery Channel's Deadliest Catch to get the idea that commercial fishing can be a career path rife with risks, making it one of the most dangerous occupations in the U.S. Sometimes the dangers stems from how fish are harvested. Rules for catching fish can vary by region and species. About a third of the U.S. fisheries operate under what's known as a derby-style fishing. A season opens for a few weeks or months, and fishermen race to land their catch before it's closed again. But derby-style fishing means commercial fishermen are sometimes forced onto the water in stormy weather before their boats can be properly maintained. Miss the window to catch fish, and for some, it can mean the difference between keeping their businesses afloat or not. But over the last decade or so, a different kind of fisheries management program known as Catch Shares has been gaining ground. The idea here is to allot fishermen a portion of the catch ahead of time and allow them to fish until they reach it. Proponents claim Catch Shares create incentives for fishers to slow down, eliminating the need to race each other to fish. A new study published online Wednesday in the Journal of Nature proves they are right. This is the first time we see broad systematic evidence that catch shares are slowing the race to fish, says study co-author Martin Smith, professor of environmental economics at the Nichols School of Environment at Duke University. Researchers looked at monthly data from 39 federally endangered commercial fisheries worth a combined $402 million south such as the Pacific Halibut, Atlantic Cod, New England Haddock, Gulf of Mexico Red Snapper, and more, which operate under catch share programs. 
The researchers then compared that data from a similar control fishery that did not operate under a catch-share program. They found that under a catch-share program, harvesters, on average, took an extra month to fish. That was a surprise, uh, says Andrew Rosberg, director of the Center for Science and Democracy. When you think about it, a month longer means fishermen made decisions about not fishing in bad weather and took their trips when it was safer. That probably meant it saved lives and reduced injuries. So that's, that's good news. We don't really like to keep our fishermen alive. Indeed, other studies have found that catch-share programs do reduce risky behavior by fishermen. And slower fishing has benefits for consumers, too. Some of the seafood we like best can be found fresh more frequently at seafood counters. For example, the Pacific halibut fishery used to operate under an extreme derby. It was caught in a matter of days and had to be frozen. Now fishing time is stretched out to, almost, to most of the year. And that means you now have a product that's available fresh much of the year and simply wasn't before. Despite the benefits, benefits catch shares can, incredibly, can be incredibly controversial. Opponents argue that such programs essentially privatized a shared public resource. This study isn't the last word on catch shares, but it's another useful piece of information about what happens when they're in place. So that's catch shares. Now, for me... Uh, being a species guy, I'm, I'm still wondering when we're going to really focus on the rough species and see some markets for those guys. The cat shares is nice, but it still has us eating haddock and halibut and cod and all those same fish that we're always eating. So we went to Facebook with this kind of question, and we asked, um, this seems like a good thing, but is it? Uh, for, of course, for the fish nerds, our take on this whole thing is it's complicated uh, because it... <laughs> It's always a complicated issue. It means a, it makes a lot of sense to have a longer, freer season uh, to get the work done, but um, it, it it maybe it makes it harder for um, in the end the same amount of fish are being caught. So that's kind of the harder thing. Uh, Andrew Lewin from the Speak Up for the Blue podcast uh, chimed in, and he said, "Longer seasons can be tricky, especially if you factor in spawning seasons. The longer you fish, the, the longer you f- you fish may yield." more success, but doesn't mean that you will successfully be successful in the long term. We know fish numbers can be finite. The fish populations need time to recover, especially this low-growing species. Again, and that brings kind of back to thinking about sustainable fish. And is it sustainable to keep eating cod and haddock and halibut? And um, I don't know the answer to it, but I do know that we need to eat a more diverse uh, amount of fish to keep to keep things going. Uh, maybe you have another opinion. You can always call us or... Uh, get on Facebook and, and join us in these conversations uh, and see what, what others think. Speaking of sustainable seafood, I'm going to transition now. Uh, the fish nerds are going to Virginia Beach. Yeah, we're going to the Vir- Virginia Beach Marine Science Center for a week. We're going to be down there in the end of May. There'll be an event page at fishnerds.com soon. And we are going to be doing some work with the aquarium, and we are going to be participating in the Sustainable Seafood Festival. In fact, I get to judge the festival. I cannot wait to taste all those delicious foods. Um, And that's coming up soon at the Virginia Aquarium. So uh, stay tuned for details the end of May on that one. And it's going to be a ton of fun. If you're in the Virginia Beach area and you want to take me fishing, um, I also am looking for fishing buddies while I'm down there, so, so drop me, a, drop me a, a line. 
All right, next up we have uh, Andrew Lewin from the Speak Up for the Blue podcast with the Speak Up for the F and Blue segment. Welcome to the Speak Up for F and Blue segment here with Andrew Lewin. That is me. And we are going to talk about some ocean news updates, updates, updates uh, here on Fish Nerds. And uh, I've got two pretty cool ones for you. One's kind of scary. The other one's kind of cool. We'll start with the scary one and on the cool one. Uh, There was an article that I read. For the life of you, I cannot remember where I saw it or found the link. Uh, But an article I read about Florida. Florida and climate change in particular, sea level rise. And we all often hear, uh, you know, people talking about, you know, people at the UN and the uh, the International Panel for uh, Climate Change. You hear them, all the modelers say, in 50 years, we're going to see one meter or one centimeter rise or globally uh, in sea level. We're going to see a three centimeter rise or we're going to see a a meter rise in certain areas. And uh, and it's it's scary to think about, but it's far off. It's uh, 50 years, 100 years down the road. We're certainly not going to be around. Uh, our kids will, but we're, we're certainly not going to be around. But you know, it's it's one of those things where you just you, you have to think about it. And and one of the 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 ways that I think about it is in the news. I found there's this guy who's talk in Florida who lives in Miami. His dad lives in an apartment uh, or a condo in Miami along the beach or on the beach, I guess. Uh, one of those uh, islands, those inner intercoastal islands. And he work, he he lives there in a building. The parking is underground. And he often says, the father often says that the parking lot is flooded to the point where it go the water goes into the cars. And it happens, it's happening more and more often. And this is the stuff that climate change scientists have been saying for years. Miami and Florida in particular are going to be flooded because they're low-lying and they're going to see the effects of climate change more and see the effects of, uh, of um, sea level rise. Now, the interesting part of all this is that the government, the state government, and of course now the, the, the federal government, are not dealing with climate change anymore because they think that it's, it's not in the best interest of taxpayers' monies for the U.S., I think is BS, to be honest. And uh, it's one of those things where you're just like, we need to do better. We need to start saying, look, we're seeing changes now. It's not 50 years down the road. It's not 100 years down the road. We're seeing changes now. Soon people will not be able to go to Miami as Miami is now or be able to go to Sarasota, Florida and see Sarasota, Florida. The the big companies and corporations like Big Sugar in Florida are destroying the Everglades whenever they feel like it which is making Florida more vulnerable to sea level rise. Uh, This is not to scare you, but more to sort of enlighten you to say, if you didn't know that climate change was a big deal, it is a huge, huge deal. Uh, Before Trump was in power, uh, you know, the Obama, the Navy, uh, professional societies for scientists, NASA, all thought and all said that climate change was the number one uh, the number one threat to the United States and the world. And we're doing it to ourselves. We're doing it in the way we live. We're doing it in uh, what we do in life. You know, we, we, the way we choose to live right now, we do it. I do it. We try and reduce as much as possible, and we can. And I always tell people, you know, yes, we have to do things at the policy level at each different level of government but we also have to do it for us. We also have to do it at home. We also have to do it individually and as a community. 
It takes it's going to take everybody to get it, not everybody to do it, not just a few people in power that are that are in whatever country. It's going to have to do with us at home, starting at home and moving out. That's what's going to take. So I I beg you and and I suggest I highly encourage you to look around your household and see what you can do better, especially something that you can afford. I'm not saying break the bank because I don't, certainly don't. Um, but you can look at the best bang for your buck in certain ways, especially, you know, when you're looking at lighting and, and electricity usage and things like that. Not only, uh, you know, one of the, the good points, a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Brett Favero, uh, who wrote a, uh, wrote a book on how you can be a climate change hero. Uh, he said uh, to me, he said, um, everything that you do to reduce climate change is good for you. It's good for your pocket or wallet, and it's good for your health. So think about those two things and how it's good for you. Um, and maybe later on, a couple of other uh, segments that I will talk to you about what I do uh, in, in ways that we can conserve at home. So that's the first story. That's the doom and gloom kind of story. But there's a hope in that because we can all do something about it. Uh, also, we can pressure our governments to do it as well in Canada, the U.S., Mexico, all over Europe, everywhere, right? Uh, but... Let's talk about uh, something that uh, is kind of funny that that came into the news. There's a video, or there's a, a number of pictures that are going around of a dolphin throwing around an octopus in the ocean, or a pod of dolphins throwing around an octopus. Now that I found was interesting, and everybody's like, "Oh my god, look at these dolphins! They're just playing with this octopus. The poor octopus! I can't believe it! You know, this poor octopus was going to die. He probably died, or the octopus probably did die because." The it's it's actually a behavior that was found by researchers at Murdoch University in Australia who published a paper in Marine Mammal Science talking about this behavior that they found over and over and over again with bottlenose dolphins eating octopus. The reason why they're throwing these octopus around is because they have to. They have to annihilate this octopus because if they don't, the bottlenose dolphins can die. And I'm going to tell you why. It has to do with the way the octopus are built. The octopus has a head, eight tentacles. The octopus also has a nervous system. It's not a centralized nervous system, it's decentralized. That means even if they, the head is severed from the rest of the tentacles, the tentacles can still move around and still try and survive. And that's what happens. The dolphins have to literally rip and kill every part of the octopus so that it dies and then they can eat it. Now, it's a tasty snack, but it comes with a life-threatening uh, risk. So if they eat the head, the head could still survive. It could still poke them with their, their beak that they have. Uh, and if they, eat the, if they try and eat the arms without really destroying the arms, the tentacles, it will actually can get stuck and lodged in their throat. The, the octopus has suction cups, right? Suckers on the end. And it, what happens is it, gets, it suctions to their, to their body and it asphyxiates them so they can choke. And they can die. And it's happened to two bottlenose dolphins that researchers have found. So before you start, next time you actually, next time you actually look at this picture and you see comments of saying, oh, you know, dolphins are such assholes and this and that. Uh, you know, I know there's some articles. Deep Sea News has posted some articles on why, you know, I think it was top 10 reasons. A couple of years ago, they wrote an article, top 10 reasons why dolphins are assholes. And then there's another article by Holly Beak that uh, she wrote in uh, Deep Sea News and she was saying how, you know, you know, reason 5,637 of why dolphins are assholes is because they throw around these octopus. But it's actually a, a necessity. 
for octopus. And it's really female adults. So this is a learned behavior. The baby, the, the, the calves, the babies, whatever you want to call them, they don't know how to do this. And it has to be taught by the parents to show, hey, you have to kill every single part of this, this thing, or it is like an alien. It will kill you. Um, so it's kind of a cool thing that I, I think is, is a cool adaptation to, to dolphins. It's a risk. And I think it's something that these dolphins have to look out for if they want a nice, tasty treat. So anyway, that is your update, uh, for the speak up for F and blue news and conservation. Uh, thank you very much for allowing me to do this clay and everybody in the fish, fish nerds audience. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, as you know, I host Speak Up for Blue podcast. So if you're listening to that podcast after you listen to the Fishners podcast, of course, uh, come say hello. You can email me, Andrew, at speakupforblue.com. I would love uh, to uh, see you again there. And here again next week, we'll stay tuned and I will bring you more ocean news. Back to you, Clay. Thank you for letting me do this. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Always uh, always good to have him there. And congratulations to Speak Up the Blue for celebrating their 300th episode. Um, so they're only 150 episodes ahead of us. But I think I think they do like 20 a week or something like that. Andrew is prolific and can talk. And uh, if you let him, he'll do 20 episodes a day. So that was Speak Up for the F and Blue. And you can find that podcast wherever you find your podcast. Uh, speaking of podcasts, this podcast is... Sponsored by you, our patrons, over at patreon.com. You, the listeners, support this show. If you like the podcast and want to keep it going, please help us crowdfund this show by going to patreon.com slash fishnerds. And we're asking everyone to give us a dollar per episode, just one dollar, four dollars a month, and help keep the show going. Uh, There's all kinds of little, little rewards for donating. And seriously, it's our only funding source right now for the program. Special thanks to Josh Lopes at lopestax.com for doing $25 a week. That's our biggest donor. That's more than we expect from most listeners. Really, a dollar show is all we need. If everyone would do that, I could make a full living making a podcast, and we could do things like buy better microphones, pay producers, and that sort of thing. So, um, but, but thank you, all you Patreon subscribers. We really are, are happy to have you. So I got a chance this week, I got an email from Captain Sean from MainTuneFishing.com, and uh, he was on Kickstarter, and he found this thing called the Black Bow, the Easy Sabiki, and it basically looks like a stick with a bunch of uh, strings and tiny flies coming off of it. And uh, he said, check this out, Clay, you might really be interested in this. So rather than checking out myself, I actually uh, emailed the inventor of the Easy, Easy Sabiki, to ask him all about the Black Bow, the Easy Sabiki, and what he's doing in Kickstarter. And I like the idea so much, I backed it on Kickstarter. We got Philip Brown from New Zealand over Skype. Hi there, Clay Groves, fishnerds.com. I'm hanging out in New Zealand. Well, I'm not in New Zealand. Uh, Phil Brown is in New Zealand. I'm in New Hampshire. It's stupid 4 a.m. here. It's like 8 o'clock the next day down there. Phil, welcome to the podcast. G'day, how's it going? Hey, it's going great. Uh, thanks for helping me figure out the time zones. It, was, it took me like three hours of math yeah, to yeah. figure this all out. <laughs> yeah, sorry for getting you up so early. No, nah, I'm usually up anyway. I usually get ready to go fishing or something at this time, so I can I can handle four o'clock. Oh. Had, I've had a cup of coffee already. I've watched your Sabiki vig- video about ten times. Made some notes. Oh, three days. The reason I have you here is is a friend of mine whose name is Captain Sean Tibbetts. He's a uh, tuna fisherman out of Maine at maintunafishing.com. 
sent me a message and he says, Clay, have you seen the Easy Sabiki? He was excited about the concept. And so I went on to Kickstarter yeah. and I looked at your video, which I'll link to at fishners.com. And I thought, man, this solves a problem I've been having. Because for me, Sabiki rigs are one-time use. I go out fishing for one day with a Sabiki rig and then I throw it in the trash because it's a terrible mess. So I'm going to let you, Phil, tell us yeah. all about your black bow, the Easy Sabiki. Yep. So go. Well, Clay, like the problem problem that you have is probably I've found is a problem that a lot of people have, and sometimes they don't even go through one sabiki. A lot of people might go through three or four sabikis in a in a bait session. So, um, and I, I I sort of had that same problem myself, and and um and for some reason I also for some reason I hung on to my sabikis as well. I don't know why I couldn't bear to throw them away or something, and. And I was cleaning out my tackle bag one day, and I was like, why have I got all these tangled up rusty old sabikis in my tackle bag? And I just I'd throw them away. So, And and, and it turns out just, people just treat them as disposable items and that sort of thing. And and th- that's not a fantastic thing. It's just more stuff going into the environment and all that sort of stuff. But also um, the, the thing that I sort of find with them as well is, is – um, it just uses up your fishing time, you know, like sometimes you're on the boat and it's just like you get a good string of fish on there. And, they, you know, I, I have to say they're really, really good at catching fish. And we, should fish stop and for, we should stop for one second because I just realized I, we haven't told yep. people what sabiki rigs are. There are actually people who don't know what these are. Yeah. Um, okay, a sabiki rig is a, small, is a small sort of ledger rig. It has usually a string of hooks and they're about, they're very, very small. They're about... Uh, I don't know, maybe 12 millimeters, or I don't know what you call it in inches, half an inch or something like that size. And they've got a little bit of flasher on there and lots of stuff. And they have about five hooks on them, one main leader line. And they have about five or six little uh, dropper lines that come off it. And then you have a weight on one end and you hook the other end to your main line. And you drop them down into a, like a school of bait fish. And they attract small bait fish that you use for catching, usually for catching live bait. And, um, and you you can catch them for for table fish as well, depending what you're you're targeting. Um, and then you use, you usually catch these live bait. You drop them in your live tank, and you use those live bait to go and catch bigger fish. And that's generally what they what they're for. So yeah. And um, the reason the reason they tangle a lot is usually because I've I've you know I've studied them a bit, and they just basically have a this this collapsible main line so am i still with you there no you're still with me and i gotta tell you i and i almost prefer to yep. catch bait all day <laughs> and with a sabiki you can get six yeah. or eight fish at a time which is kind of the why wow, they're really fun right so that's yeah that's yeah, the yeah, yeah. Of that. yeah they're really good like that yeah yep yeah and um yeah so they're, they're very effective and they're very good for for that sort of thing so there, there are other ways of catching um catching your bait and all that sort of stuff and they're usually good but something like you, you can use cast nets and bait nets and things like that um, and they they they're good because you can, you can get a lot a lot of bait using nets and that sort of thing. But sometimes the nets are usually um, they can damage your fish, um, you know, because they're all, they bunch them all up. Or sometimes they get tangled up in the nets and things. So you get a lot of bait with nets, but um, poor condition um, bait. So that when you're using live baits, you really want to be in the best possible condition when you're when you're putting them out there to work for you, basically. Um, so yeah, so then the other problem with nets is they only really work in like shallow water as well. So if you're if you're going if your bait schools are below forty feet or something like that, then you you're not going to have much luck with a net. So that's why people use sabikis, and so you can just drop them down as long as as far as they need to go. So 
Um, and that's that's basically why sabiki's are good for for baits, but then they they just have this problem of tangling up and becoming a bit of a bit of a mess sometimes if you don't manage them carefully. So I have to say there, there's people out there that have have, have uh, can use sabiki's quite well and that sort of thing, but in general they're, they're considered disposable. And you know as soon as they tangle up and that sort of thing, it's just throw it up, chuck it in the trash, and then uh, and then get a new one sort of thing. So. And then I, so I, I sort of recognised this problem and I just sort of chipped away at an idea that I had to try and um, sort of fix the, the, the problem of, of the tangling sabiki. And, um, and I've, I've come up with the black bow. I looked at, I researched a lot and sort of just try and, I really just wanted to find something that sort of fixed the problem for myself. I didn't really want to go through this whole process of inventing something, but it's, that's <laughs> just what I've ended up doing. Here we are. Um, yeah, and so, yeah, what I found through the research, yeah, there's just lots of workarounds, and everyone's like, "Oh, this is how I store my sabiki," and it's always how you how you manage it carefully and all that sort of stuff to try and stop it from tangling. So, you know, an example like there's the sabiki rod, which is is good for for keeping the sabiki straight and untangled. But that's only when I don't know if a oh, sabiki rod is a is a basic fishing rod that's a hollow tube, and you 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 wind your sabiki up inside the tube, and that keeps it all straight and out of the way. And safe sort of thing. It's no fun. And that, that's a solution, but it, it's still it's no fun. It's it's the and and my point of view with that is it only keeps the sabiki untangled when you're not using the sabiki. So when your sabiki's out and you're fishing with it, it still has the potential to tangle. So and 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 also the other thing with the rods is they're quite long because sabiki rigs are usually about. I don't know, seven foot long, or eight feet, or something like that. So um, that's how long the rod has to be if you're going to wind the sabiki up inside it. And then also, um, they they have zero action basically. Like it's pretty much like fishing with a broomstick. Exactly. So yeah, and it's it's and time and really delicate mounts and these bait stuff. The the last thing you want is like a, a rod with no action. It's like you're going to rip the rip the hooks out of their, their mouths and stuff. So with with um with my my black bow rig, you can basically use that on any type of one. So you can just clip it on and, and have like really nice and and it's and it's um it's quite good to use that way. So the other thing the as well is it's dedicated to one purpose. Like it goes into a rod hole, uses up a rod holder on your boat and then also they're hard to store on your boat if you've got a smaller boat because they're long and all that sort of thing. So um there's, there's other points around the use of that that makes it cool. And they're expensive. You've got to pay like, what, 60 bucks for a rod and you've got to buy a reel for it and all that sort of thing. So that's that's one solution that I've found that's out. And um, yeah, so it didn't really sort of do it for me. So I just sort of thought I wanted to buy something else. And, and I went down the rather unconventional step of of um, just replacing the main the main leader line with um, a, you know a solid or flexible carbon fiber rod, and then just use the dropper lines off that, which sort of just has this flexible elastic property to it that just keeps them in 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 position basically and won't let them come together. Which is which is so simple a concept, and it's shocking that you're the first one to do this. <laughs> it makes such oh, perfect sense. Oh, now I, I see can, it. I, 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 yeah, I understand why I'm, I, I think I've come after sort of putting it out there because I've, I've been using this for about two, two or three years now. 
like and I, because I've been developing it and just sort of coming up with different tweaks to it, lots of stuff, and and getting little bits designed for it and getting them made for me and that sort of thing. And I haven't really unwrapped it or uncovered it or showed anyone it because I've just been using it myself just because this is the reason why um, it's, I finally got to a point where I'm able to show it to the world because I've obviously had it uh, now protected through other channels and that sort of stuff. And then um, and now I can show people and say, this is what it is, what do you think? And that sort of and um, feedback's been really good. Tons and tons of people going, that's exactly what I need because they – and I – I feel a little bit validated because it's actually I, I'm not the only one that has the problem with tangled sabiki. So um, it, there's a lot of people that have the same sort of problem. So that that's a good thing. Um, it works. What should I what should I do with it now? Well, and, and you now you're brought to Kickstarter and you're trying to raise yeah. uh, fifteen thousand New Zealand, which is about uh, ten thousand four hundred um, American dollars. And and you're at. Maybe about a third of the way there now, right? Pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations. So, yeah, so you've got 27 I, I, days left on this, which is amazing. I know. Yeah, so hopefully I can get a few more. I mean, like, that's that's not a whole lot of backers I'm looking for. I think I've got 84 backers or something. I probably only need about 300, I think, something sure. like that. Um, so, you know, and, and the purpose of this is really to um, – I want to produce a f- quite a few more of them. So, because um, at the moment it's only really just been me and a few mates and stuff that have been using it. So, it's really I think I've developed it to a stage where it's at a kind of what you do, what you call like a beta release version, which is basically a version that's ready to go to market and show let other people use it really. And because I think I guess the main purpose is because I'm only using it for myself and I need other people to use it now and I want other people to to try it out and and I can't take it around the world myself I'd love to I'd absolutely love to just take it in every ocean and every sea and fish with it everywhere mm-hmm. but I'd just be catching bait all the time as well but you know <laughs> so um, but you know um, it's really it's, it's, that's what the pur- main purpose of the project is to do is to is to try and um, uh, pro- you know do a larger production run of these and get them out there to lots of people who are willing to to back the project um because i I also can't pay for the whole lot myself so as in in backing the project if you make a pledge you'll get you'll get one of these rigs and then you use it in your waters and your with with the um the traces the lures and stuff that i give you and then give me feedback so I'll, i'll set up a system where people can directly reply and tell me how they how it went for them and and also uh, feedback in the sense they can offer suggestions for stuff and say, oh, maybe try this type of uh, lure or try this type of um, line or something like that. You know, it, it needs. I need to share it now so people can can contribute to it because I think I've I've done as much as I can with it and um, you know uh, it's it's going to be always evolving and always growing and always developing. So that's kind of the purpose of the project. Like I'm, you know, I'm getting lots and lots of uh, requests for. From retailers and and people wanting distribution and all that sort of stuff, but I really want this. Um, and um, you know, and I, I want a good variety of locations and all that sort of stuff and different um, different waters for it to be used in, so they can tell me how it gets on. So, well, well that's really that's really exciting. And uh, so I've backed you, the fish nerds have put some money in the pot here because we want to try it out. I know that I have a, my friend Captain Sean, who we talked about earlier, he's going to be throwing some money in the hat. He's a, a tuna fisherman, and he uses sabikis every day in his job, so this would be really great. Uh, he had a few questions. Can I ask you those? All right. 
right, so Sean from MainTuitiveFishing.com. Uh, he, uh, by the way, he wanted to come on at four o'clock this morning, but I can't tolerate him that that time of day. He makes me <laughs> <laughs> he's too too abrasive for me at four in the morning. But uh, uh, his biggest concern is the bow scaring away herring. Now, have you fished for herring with this thing? Um. Um, I'm in Pacific waters. I'm guessing herring would be, um, I have to do the the translation (laughs) of species, but, um, I guess, is it like, might be mullet or sprats or something like that? No, no, more like alewife, uh, shad family. So you probably don't have them down your way. Yeah. So we'll, we'll test them in the herring waters. (laughs) That's, yeah, that's the sort of thing we need, I need to know. Like those, um, is... There's, there are there are similar species in in, in the Atlantic to Pacific mm-hmm. um, species, but really it's like I've been fishing in the Pacific, so it's pro, it, I can say most of the species here and up around Japan and probably down your west coast would probably be similar to what I have here. I would think so. Now, um, have you once we get in Gulf, yeah once you get in the Gulf of Mexico or um, out into the Atlantic, then then you'll probably have you got some very different species there that we need to find out if they're if they're keen or not so you know that's, yeah, well, that's the idea of the process well, we'll give it a shot in the gulf of maine have you tested this alongside like have you fished side by side a traditional sabiki and this and noticed a difference or has it been just the difference being tangled or not tangled um like i haven't test. done like scientific tests but yeah. yes i have and they both they both catch the same fish good um i with the also with the version that i have I've been using lures that I've had made up from a manufacturer, and I've only really given them really rough specifications around the, the traces that I'd like. And it was only really just to test. Um, it was only really to test what it was like to deal with them, as far as the manufacturer goes, and how how much I could get them to change the product, or get, you know, as far as it was uh, trying to develop a relationship. Working with, I only did it to try and sort of. Yeah, all right. So it looks like so. So your tracers on your sabikis, which is different than everybody else's, is the tracers are the strings that come out with the bait with the with the fly on the end of them. Those are completely replaceable and switchable. And so you've been working with manufacturers to try and see how it is to work with those guys, almost testing their their ability to produce what you're yeah, asking yeah. for, right? I was just testing. Yeah, yes, that's right. Just testing their ability to su- to supply and also change designs based on what I asked them to do. So. I've only really had a few designs made up, uh, like samples made. So mm-hmm. I've been using those, and I and just from using the the, the samples that I've given, I, there's already changes to those that I want to do. So I'd say comparing the black bow sabiki to uh, traditional sabikis, you're comparing 50 years of commercialization against uh, me having a go with a, 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 sen- a sabiki manufacturer at my you know on my first couple of um, communications with them that sort of stuff so as part of this project what i also want to do is sort of do a bit of a wider survey and also try and get um what the types of lures and and traces that people want you know like what's the best hook size do people like flasher um lures do people like fish skins or or imitation shrimp styles and that sort of thing so it's kind of like um it's it's about I think it's it's all about like the design the the flash allure and that sort of stuff. Sure. I've been um I'll, I've been tipping them with, with squid or mussel like shellfish and sometimes little little bits of bait and stuff and that works really well. 
Um, ideally, I'd, I'd like to get it to a point where you can just whip it out, drop it down, all that sort of stuff, and and have have it work on the lures alone. But even with sabikis, you get that as well. Like sometimes you got to tip your sabikis if if they're not feeding that well. You got to chum up quite a lot to get them get them feeding. So it depends where you are on the day, and and that's fishing as well. So, totally is fishing. Yeah. Couple more quick questions. That, that, do you reckon that answers answer the question, though? I think, I think it, I've went too long about it. But I, yeah. That's okay. We can we can make it work. A uh, couple more questions, yeah. then we got to wrap this. Um, Captain Sean wants to know how abrasive resistance is this bow he catches in the Gulf of Maine. Uh, lots of bluefish, dogfish, other teethy animals will chase the beakies. Um, and uh, how he's not worried about the hooks and the line, but he's worried about how abrasive resistance resistant is the bow. Can that bow handle some abuse from some of these other fish? Oh yeah, oh that that bow will pr- will pretty much handle. It's it's quite a solid piece of material. I, I what I've done though, I was originally wanting to change the the mini traces to braid, like fifteen pound braid or something like that. Um, and then I thought, actually, it might still just be better to have the traces as, as, with the breaking strain so that if you do have something chomp on that, it's the trace that's going to fail and mm-hmm. not the bow. Smart. But, yeah, the bow's pretty strong. It's like I haven't done an exact breaking st- strain test on it. I could I could probably do that. I'd Actually, no, nah, I think my um, the gauge I have won't, won't be able to handle it. It's pretty strong. Right. I mean, it looks that's, like that's it looks like a, a, a. It's not a scientific measurement, though, is it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, your your uh, your your uh, bow looks like a piece of fishing rod almost. It almost reminds me of like the top half of a, yeah, a yeah, small yeah. fishing rod. So it, it really has that flexibility, and like most fish are going to grab the hooks, not well, that I've been, anyway. I've been wa- yeah, I've been watching lots of um, ice fishing videos for some reason, and um, cause yeah. we don't do ice. But there's no ice. The fishing down here, but I watch so it. Sad. I'm going. Yeah, I was just looking at the little, the tiny little rods they have and stuff, and I was going, and that's why it sort of caught my eye because, like, I was, I was wondering what, um, what material they're using to make the rods out of and that sort of thing. So, this what I've used is a is called is a pultruded carbon fiber rod. Um, so it's not like it's not hollow, it's not um, wrapped or anything like that. It's actually the carbon, the fibers are all being stretched out, and they're all sort of stuck together like a a bunch of um hairs you know that, that sort of thing so it's very flexible and i can i can bend it around almost 360 you know right around into a circle and it and it won't um splinter or break or anything like that so when you hold it up and and hold one end of it and you've got fish on it it will only ever bend 90 degrees because that's as far as gravity takes it so it's it never really gets to a breaking strain or breaking point um if you had a larger fish on the thing is to catch the larger fish you'll probably actually end up having a bait fish on one of the hooks and you'll get the kingfish or something like that will take your bait and that's what um i've had some um guys do or talk about they've said that they've had fish on their sabikis and then um they wind them up and then you get the predatory fish will come in and take your bait while you're bringing up your sabiki so um i'm pretty the the black bow will handle that because um it's got a lot of strength through the bow and it's uh, it'll be your uh, your main line will break before the bow does. Oh, good. <laughs> well, that's that's great. And yeah. so people can support you by going to Kickstarter and looking for Black Bow, the Easy Sabiki. Yeah. We'll put links up at fishnerds.com. 
And Phil, I hope you can. Awesome. I hope you can get all your funding you need for this thing. Um, Fish nerds certainly love to see kind of uh, stuff like this winning out in the marketplace. And if you ever want to go ice fishing, by the way, I am an ice fishing guide. So if you ever get to, uh, oh, be cold. You ever get up to the East Coast United States yeah. in the wintertime, I'll take you ice fishing. Now, here's the sad thing about ice fishing: you awesome. cannot use sabikis under in fresh water in New Hampshire. So um, we would catch so well, many fish. Thing- yeah, yeah. I've I've looked around like because also I was just trying to look at the regulation stuff. I know in um, in Maryland or something like that they got they got some regulations around you're only allowed to have three hooks on a rig, so yep. a lot of guys have to chop sabikis in half. Yep. Whereas yeah. here you just take off two you take off two mini traces and then you've got a Maryland safe uh, sabiki that you can use oh, and, and that sort of thing. So you know, so I it, once I sort of decided to sort of go a bit bigger with this i just started doing a lot of research and figuring out it's actually got a lot more features and benefits than i than i initially planned you know like in the travel tube and the way it stores in the tube and stuff those things i didn't actually um plan to make it just i just said oh this will this will do and then i was going oh well actually it's really easy to store and it's really easy to put away and it's really easy to get out and all that sort of stuff so oh, sure. and, um, all and- these other benefits just came with the design of it and mm. once you once you bring it to the marketplace and people start having especially these first backers on, on kickstarter uh they're going to come up with many many more ideas for you and you'll um you'll have a whole new uh <laughs> new thing to invent next so phil do you, you're not an inventor yeah, yeah. as a oh, job no, it'll, be, it'll be it'll be version version two yeah 2.0 <laughs> now phil this is not what you do for a living you have a real uh real job elsewhere right you're uh, yeah, I'm a I'm a video editor for a living. I've yeah, and I've I've worked in video production for for all my all my years and stuff. And um, I've always and I've worked and done a lot of commercial uh, work as well. So like do for ad agencies and things. And I've always I've always made videos and stuff for other people's widgets. And mm-hmm. then and then I've just finally got my own widget. And I'm going, this is crazy. Got my own widget you. on my own client on my own agency. You know, I can tell them like you know. Doing the commercial stuff comes with its things. You gotta, you gotta sort of, uh, yeah, you gotta sort of do what the client says. But now I can, I can sort of do what I want with it, and 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 it's my own widget, which I'm really, really happy about, and I get excited about it, and I love, love using it. And as you say, like you go out catching bait fish, and I always come home and go, yeah, I got some good bait today, and then, yeah, everyone else in the house is going, well, where, where's our, where's our dinner? So, just, just you know, just eat the bait anyway. That's what I do. <laughs> it's, it's delicious. Yeah. Uh, hey, Phil, I got to go, uh, and we wish you the best success. Congratulations. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you very much. All right, Phil. See ya. All right. Thanks, Philip. That was great. Um, and again, you can check out more by uh, going to fishners.com, and you can click through to the Kickstarter campaign, and you can donate. And finally, we have a Stump the Fishners. It's been a long time since anyone's asked us a question that that made the show, so... In this segment, Stump the Fish Nerds, uh, listeners can chime in on Facebook or can call 607-378-FISH and ask us anything you want. And Carl Hayes, one of our fans, I think he's from Philadelphia, uh, hit us on Facebook and he asked us, what's the method of killing a trout by putting a pin in its head called? And I actually never heard of this. Um, and so we had to do a little bit of researching. Um, now, we started a little Facebook discussion. Mike Steffen called it uh, pithing. Um, but it's not actually called pithing. It actually has a real name. Um, by the way, Jeff Danielson chimed in. And he says there's a way to do this with catfish. 
there's a soft spot on the skull and you can slide a small knife and blade and scramble the brain up and uh, bleed it out. But it actually has has a real a real name and that real name is called I said it wrong the first time it's called I said it says I K E J J I M E it's guy Ikijimi <laughs> Ikijimi I read it as Ike Jime and what it is is um Ike Jime <laughs> Ikijimi is is something really simple it's basically taking a needle and putting it into the brain of the fish and scrambling the brain up really simple and killing it quickly and the the concept is first of all you kill it quickly and humanely and then you cut the um it's called an isthmus <laughs> they call it this but you cut the little part of skin between the two gills and then you stick the fish in an ice lorry and let it bleed out into the ice and in theory that's going to keep your fish fresher longer and kill it fast cool thing is you can actually get the ikijimi <laughs> uh app for your phone which has little maps of fish brains and you could find out which fish um which fish you have uh where his brain is and where to stick that needle in and you can buy a tool for it but i think a little ice pick would do the job really really well and there's two things like i said there's two things you're going to kill your fish quickly so if, you, if you're going to eat fish probably it makes sense to humanely kill your fish quickly and the fact that it's going to taste better if you ice it fast even even that's a bonus on there so Ikijimi, I tested the app out um, and I, on a bluegill. I didn't kill the fish. I just kind of looked at the uh, little map. And sure enough, there's a little x-ray of the fish with a little brain hole on there. And if you have one, just stick a little needle in that brain and, and you're good to go. And the fish dies quickly and hopefully with as little pain as possible and you get it. So that's Ikijimi, I-K-I-J-I-M-E. And I'll put links up to the app on our, on our fishnerds.com page so you can check all that stuff out. Icky Jimmy. So that's it. You listen to a few fish nerds when you should have been fishing. Of course, want to thank uh, my family for supporting me while we podcast. Go on Fishing Quest and do all sorts of silly things that nerds do. If you want to support the fish nerds, the best thing to do right now is share this podcast with your friends and encourage them to uh, download the show. And until next time, follow the code of the fish nerds, spawn early and often, avoid free lunches with strings attached, and swim against the current every chance you